Would you open your Bible today to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? And in this, uh, in this fifth session about um, going for the gold, um, I'd like you to see in the core of this chapter a very pivotal truth about how we live out in victory the truth we talked about last week about rewards in the realm of grace. Now, we began on New Year's Day looking at uh, bringing the gold, the tr- gold treasure of our hearts to, our, to the King of kings and Lord of lords, that nothing takes higher priority than worshiping our Lord and Savior with the treasures of our hearts. Just as the Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh, to adorn the king with adoration, God gives us that model to bring the the gold, to bring the treasury of our hearts to Christ in worship. Then we spent two Sundays delving into that 19th Psalm to look at a truth that we're going to cycle back to in uh, a session that I call a Bible Bible Discovery Workshop. But that Psalm 19 is a part of the foundation of this vision of going for the gold because the gold mine is God's word. The gold mine is God's word. And then last Sunday we were looking at uh, the truth of the gold quest. And we saw that here in this uh, third chapter of 1 Corinthians. And I'd like you to just go down and look at that 11th verse again. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. What will be revealed with fire? The totality of the works, the produce, the production, the totality of the life, character, attitude, actions, motives of every single human being will be called to ultimate accountability before God. And this pivotal truth is, is, has two aspects that are, are so timely, I think, in getting a handle on how we set goals in our lives. Because this tr- passage really gives us a glimpse at a truth the Scripture teaches about real works, the living works that come out of the redeemed heart of a child of God who knows, as we saw last week, that It is not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That truth is foundational not only because of the new birth, nothing could be more important in eternity than the reality of the gift of salvation through the new birth, but also it's important because it's the foundation of grasping the positive way the New Testament uses this word works. So we're going to see that today. But the other part of this pivotal passage in 1 Corinthians 3, verses, primarily verses 9 through 15, is that it helps us grasp another thought, which is kind of a buzzword in our culture today in an odd way, and that is the word accountability. How many of you occasionally, now be honest with me, occasionally, 
When you hear something in media, the news, in common conversation, where they claim some politician or some political group or some organization claims they're going to, quote, hold someone accountable. How many thousands and thousands and thousands of times do we hear that in media these days? We're going to hold them accountable. We're going to make them accountable. How many, how many of you, everyone, please be honest with me, how many of you every once in a while get a little cynical about that? Is that really going to happen? Shout, say the word accountability, accountability. Now, how many of you would agree with me on this one simple fact that accountability is quite inconsistent in our world? That accountability is nowhere near, no, not even, a, not even anywhere near uh, a level of, uh, that we could really count on people being, quote, held accountable right? Well, that fact, that fact about human existence today is a great intro for us to zero back in in the heart of this third chapter of 1 Corinthians for the simple reason that this chapter in a very pregnant way, it, in, a, in a compressed way, in a way that has a lot of um, uh, meat in it, this passage helps us realize that the ultimate accountability all of us will face before Christ, our King, is in itself a proof of why every single heart needs the gospel of that new birth and the joy of encountering the living God. And when we look at it this way, I think we can realize that the awesome and somewhat, um, maybe for some people, Fear-inspiring words of verse 13 should be taken to heart in both a, a humbling way as well as a motivational way. So I'm going to read it again, and we're going to spend some time in these verses, so be ready to kind of go back into your own Bible. Whichever Bible you're using that's like your primary Bible, keep it focused here on this passage today, even as we glance at some other related verses. Because in this passage, verse 13, we read... There, the uh, plural personal pronoun there refers to all of us, all redeemed believers. Their work will be shown for what it is. So the first thing I'd like you to notice is that accountability before God is going to be comprehensive. It's going to be complete. It is going to be infinitely wise and it is irrespective of person. Nobody gets a break on it. And that fact is both awe-inspiring. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 12, 28 that we should come before our Heavenly Father with reverence and godly fear knowing this accountability. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There is a motivational aspect to realizing all of us stand before the gaze of, of a holy God with the assurance in Scripture that our accountability will be absolutely flawless. And in this passage we see because if you are in the grace of God, in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that 
awesome fact is actually also a wonderful motivational fact for setting goals in our lives. That is, that gives us the opportunity to do what we read earlier in our beginning, do all to the glory of God. Would you just say that aloud again with me? Do all to the glory of God. And the, the, the key word that comes through these passages as we look at 1 Corinthians 3 is that all of us are called to glorify God. And once we see, as we looked at last week, that the foundation of Christ being laid in our lives can never be laid again because the foundation is not what we laid. The foundation is what he laid through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father. Where he poured out this which you now see and hear, the Bible tells us in Acts 2.33. So here we have this gifting of the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The grace of God poured into the lives of the redeemed. So that we, following kind of a model here of Paul and his companion apostle Apollos, describes the labor of love they did for the redeemed people of God in the, and to bring the good news of, the, of Christ to others, that Paul described it in these words, these very familiar words, but it's timely to understand that when you're in the grace of God, you're co-laboring with God. And here's how Paul put it, for we are God's servants working together, you are God's field, God's building. The emphasis of the Apostle Paul as he goes down to the 15th verse is that whatever we do, and he included himself in this, whatever we do, companion apostles or not, is all going to be held accountable before God. But the other side of that coin is we couldn't do it unless the grace of God was working in us and you are God's project. You, the redeemed people of God, you're God's field your God's building. We saw last week this agricultural side of it speaks of the dynamic of organic growth. If you're in Christ, you're growing. You're a, you are a living, you're having a living experience of the developing of the life of Christ in you. And God is looking for a harvest from our lives. The other side is that illustration of the building. So you're being edified, you're being structured, you're being uh, you yourself are a part of the building of something that is to glorify God. So that whatever we do, whether in eating or drinking or in any of our activities, across the spectrum of our lives, we are called to have a heart and a passion when we wake up on Monday morning. Whatever I'm to do today, Lord, may it glorify you. That's the gold in our goals. Whatever goals we may have in our hearts, whatever goals we may be charting out on a spreadsheet or on a tablet or in some place that we're trying to capsulize our goals, the gold in our goals is what my motive is. Am I, am I pursuing this to glorify God? And Paul models this and tries to explain this again with that illustration of growing a harvest for God by simply trying to put in perspective that a problem in the Corinthian church was that they were, that they were inclined to factions around prominent personalities and a competitive comparison of uh, 
which leader they favored over the other leader, and that had degenerated into cliquishness and clannishness in that uh, Corinthian environment, and very unhealthy attitudes that hindered the growth of a healthy congregational life. And one of the things I find so remarkable here is it doesn't matter what size congregation, what the style, what the setting, uh, the, these principles are absolutely across the board vital. And that is if we're going to have a healthy church, our focus has got to be first and foremost glorifying God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeking for Christ to be exalted by the way we love, live, serve, give, solve problems, confront issues, and yes, deal with people that are very different than we are. All of that is a part of a package of developing a healthy congregation. So Paul summarized this as principle. Why are you getting hung up about men? Why are you getting your minds wrapped around the axle of this personality of this preacher or that preacher or this leader or that leader? The goal of all of these, if they are quality leaders, if they are qualified leaders, if they are following the footsteps of our master, their goal is to serve with excellence, serve with boldness, serve with intensity, serve with diligence. Yes, 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 yes. But in all of that serving, their goal is that Jesus Christ may be exalted and glorified and that a people who love him have a passion to glorify God. So Paul tried to kind of put it in perspective in this way. You see how he described it with him and his companion apostle. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Notable that um, Paul had many different interactions with Simon Peter as well, and he could have used Peter as an example there, but he chose a man who was not, was not a part of the original band of the apostles. And in fact, Apollos, a man who was brought to a richer faith and a more fuller faith by having the humility to listen to a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila. And it was most likely Priscilla who helped to bring him and enlighten him to more and more of the fullness of what Christ had done in the resurrection. So this, this is a great example of the Apostle Paul himself using this principle of accountability to understand all of us are accountable to God. And he emphasizes it like this. In fact, read that bottom section of that scripture aloud with me from the screen. So, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, Paul is writing this in acute awareness that he himself, though Paul was unique in many ways in terms of how he came to Christ, the encounter on the Damascus Road, the unique miracles that God sent forth through him in Acts 19.11 where it says God did extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul and many other unique aspects of Paul's life. Those visions being caught up into the third heaven and so many other things. And yet Paul is saying, you could look at me and you could say that, you know, I'm the celebrity of celebrities. <laughs> but no, Paul approached it all. We're humble, we are servants. Not false humility, not denying the legitimate way God uses the gifts. Not some kind of like, oh, poor me, I can't do anything. No, very bold, very very aggressive, very assertive, and yet assertive under the grace of God. This is a wonderful dynamic balance here. And for our goals in life, we can draw some wonderfully rich uh, insights from this because what Paul is actually doing here in this passage, 
when we get to the text regarding the judgment of works, we see so vividly why having a foundation in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is, is so crucial to everything we see in growth in the Christian life. The problem for many people is that we only tend to focus on the part where we, not by works, lest we should boast, as if all works are negative. But no, the redemptive power of this word works, as we're going to see, is that there are no human works that can ever add anything to the value of our salvation. That, that, is, uh, that is so crystal clear throughout the gospel. But once redeemed, once set free, once born again, once filled with the Holy Spirit, the God, like Paul said, I'm planting, Apollos is watering, neither of us are anything in ourselves. But yes, we're engaged in this challenge. Yes, we're working together with God. Yes, there's a harvest coming. Yes, in our lives to personalize that we can say, yes, there are goals in my life for 2023, and I want to sanctify those goals. I want to saturate those goals in a heart passion to glorify God. Now, here's why I think it's so crucial to get this thing about accountability, and that is accountability is refreshing when it finally happens. Two odd, unrelated events remind me of this. In 1973, 50 years ago, a classic uh, repeating um, competition that uh, lots, of, lots of young boys grew up wanting to be a part of was the All-American Soapbox Derby. Some of you may remember the All-American Soapbox Derby. And in the 1973 competition, the winner had to be disqualified after the race for cheating. Turned out they had the award ceremony, everything was exciting for that winner and family. But then he forfeited his first place trophy and a $7,500 college scholarship when an x-ray disclosed that an electromagnet and battery had been rigged in the nose of his soapbox vehicle, giving him an extra starting impetus. The county prosecutor who handled the case when all that came to light said it's like seeing apple pie, motherhood, and the American flag grinding to a halt. Well, eight years later, and totally unrelated, the Indianapolis 500 was, became a memorable time in sports history because of, of the close win of Bobby Unser over Mari Andretti, Andretti and other drivers. And even in the ABC Wild World of Sports Zoom camera on the event, there's, there's a commentary that, uh, that as Unser was moving across around the track, that he took an unfair advantage in one of the passing lanes in the manner in which he went back, he went around a couple of cars. It gave him just enough of an edge to be declared the winner, and yet, even though they did, he won on the spot and they had the celebration, the very next morning, that win was taken away from Unzer because of the confirmation of the judges of that unfair advantage, and the trophy was given, although with little fanfare and a lot of, a lot of mixed emotions, to Mario Andretti. In the fall of that year, a sports review panel 
went to the trouble to go through and examine exactly what happened and, and judged and gave him back the trophy, oddly, uh, but judged that he still uh, violated the rules and he had to pay a $40,000 fine. There's a lot of irony in that whole situation. But it shows that when accountability, people struggle in human terms to, to make people accountable, and yet accountability often fails. And what the text tells us in verse 15 is that in God's day, that there will be an accountability that will cause every person's real works, the totality, not just a sporting event, not just some talent, not just a talent show, not some other external thing, but the entire person. In fact, the 13th verse of 1 Corinthians 3, again, if you look at the last part of that verse, says the fire will test the quality of each person's work. What is this fire? The fire here refers to the blinding light of the magnificence of the person of Jesus when all of us see our Lord and Savior face to face. It's the same truth of Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And in the assurance of the fact of each person's coming before Christ at the judgment seat, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we will all appear there. It's unequivocal. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now there's something in our uh, human uh, uh, perception that kind of kind of recoils from this topic of judgment. It's almost like, ooh, that's getting touchy, Pastor. I, I, and one of the most humorous examples of the way that feels is years ago when we were uh, sitting, even personally, many, many years ago, 73 and 74, under Derek Prince's teaching, Derek Prince came out with a series of booklets about the foundational doctrines of Christianity, but pr presented in a quite unique way. And uh, they, they sold those books in little divisional booklets so that you could buy each of the doctrines. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of dead, eternal judgment. And I was in an uh, event once where Derek was talking about it. He said, you know, it's quite interesting that when we broke up that book into little booklets, that uh, you could tell by the number of, of sales that there was a lot more people that bought the Faith Toward God booklet than the ones that bought the judgment, uh, the eternal judgment booklet. The, the sales went up on Faith Toward God, but we sold very few of the judgment uh, handbooks. Well, there's a reason for that, isn't there? We are all inclined to kind of recoil at the topic, but I want you to see exactly what it says in that, um, in that uh, 13th verse about why this blinding light of the of the immediate presence of Jesus is so purifying, it's like fire. The King James Bible translates the statement in verse 13 that it will bring to light what each one is or of what sort it is. Now, I, I know I'm asking you to look at very, very brief phrases here, but I think it's important. Of what sort it is, that what sort are our works, of what quality it is. And uh, I love the way that uh, Henry Ironside uh, explained this about 80 years ago. He said, not the, the statement is, what will come into the blinding light is of what sort our works are, not how much we've done. God will test everything in the light of his own truth. It is a great comfort when you cannot do all you would like to do 
to know that if it is of the sort that glorifies God, he rewards it. And, and I, it, it's, a, it's a somewhat nuanced insight, but very important. What uh, 1 Corinthians 3.13 is saying is that the blinding light of God's evaluation and accountability of our lives is not going to be based on comparisons with others. It's not going to be based on some quota of production. It's not going to be based on many of the human factors that we might judge on. No, the blinding light of the immediate presence of our risen Savior will bring to light individually the perfect accountability for every person's soul. The perfect accountability. Now, now because of that, I think we can all identify with a wonderful statement that resonates through the years by the missionary that was martyred with his team in bringing the gospel in repeated villages through uh, very daring jungle aviation strategies to get to the Aka Indian tribe and reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ in the middle of the 1950s. And the story's well known, and it's told in that wonderful book, uh, Through Gates of Splendor, by Elizabeth Elliot about her, uh, about her husband Jim when he was killed. But uh, a resounding and continuous witness of Jim Elliot and his companions was the eye on eternity. It was that grasp that going to that remote jungle, reaching a tribe of, of individuals who had no had previously had no contact with the outside world, gaining their confidence, bringing them supplies and beginning to engage with them so that they could begin to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the four farthest corners of the earth. And when the, the day came for a long-planned meeting to actually be face-to-face -face with the tribal chieftain, the tribe had had arranged a murder squad, and Jim and his companions were murdered on the beaches there in that Amazon jungle. But in the next 30 years, his widow and others who picked up the torch to bring the gospel to the Akas established a beachhead, returned time and time and time again, and there have been many, there have been movies done about it, the whole tribe came to Christ in great movement of Christ in the 60s and 70s, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to other tribes. Because just as uh, was stated in the early days of the church, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. And the resounding attitude that Jim Elliot brought to that is capsulized in that famous quote when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to keep what he cannot lose. In other words, when we think of judgment, rather than us thinking of eternal accountability as, as a negative, in Christ, because of his redeeming grace, it becomes a positive. It becomes a motivation for us to understand, yes, sin is going to be exposed. Yes, all the secrets of men's hearts will be visibly exposed, and we will know even as we are known. And yet, the text tells us as we go down to that uh, 15th verse, that this accountability is perfect 
for every human being and accents the reason being saved, being born again, belonging to Jesus Christ, and knowing that your eternal home is waiting for you is the foundation of how we serve. Let's think about what the Bible says about this accountability. Romans 14, 12 tells us, read it aloud with me here, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. In Psalm 11, God speaks of the clear and consistent and continuous accountability. We think of it only in terms of after we die, when we get into the presence of Jesus, but it's already there. We're already totally accountable to him. And so he puts it this way in Psalm chapter 11. Read aloud with me if you could, please. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. And then again, Jesus uses this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus uses this very fact to turn this in the direction of motivation for the gold in your goals. Because he says, when you bring your prayer unto the Father, not seeking some recognition, seeking nothing from men, but because of the passion in your heart to glorify him, Jesus says, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus was accenting the beauty of what it means to serve out of the knowledge that, yes, we are accountable. And that that accountability, like a laser beam, goes right into the very depths, not only of the motives of our hearts and of the actions, but even our words. When he said in Matthew 12, 36, read it aloud. Let's just read these scriptures together. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Wow, when we get to that one, I don't know about you, but Matthew 12, 36 makes me want to put my hand on my mouth and go, oh me, woe is me, amen? But again, if we see this see in the light of understanding, what he's showing us is our works fail in human power, but in Christ we're redeemed to have a new kind of works, a new quality of works. The utter failure of our works, our human works, is that they're based in self-righteousness. And so Isaiah the prophet spoke of self-righteousness like filthy rags in the 64th chapter of his book. And in the 57th chapter of his book, God speaks to Isaiah this way about the self-righteousness of rebellious hearts. I will expose your righteousness, quote righteousness, your self-righteousness, and your works, and they will not benefit you. So remember that the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 refers to dead works, and, to, and when the blood of Christ comes into your life, the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit purifies your heart from dead works to serve the living God. Those dead works are all of the things that we try to do in our power, in our strength, to try to make ourselves virtuous. And Isaiah 57 and Hebrews 9 says, it all fails. But then when you come to Christ, and Christ lives in your heart, there's something happening, there's something percolating, there's something developing that, yes, we can still call works. Say the word works with me. Works. But it's not dead works. Now it's grace-empowered works. And these are the works that 
are going to be revealed in the day there in 1 Corinthians 3. So how does this word works work? Let's work with this word works for a minute, okay? And just think of it like this. First, quick summary, quick summary, thumbnail sketch. One, not of works, that is my salvation. Shout, it, shout hallelujah. Not of works. Would you say it with me? Not of works. Say it again. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. No human work can ever add. Isaiah made it clear. Secondly, emphasize in Galatians 2, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But then, note this, okay? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, and about five times in 1 Timothy, in fact, good works are spoken of positively by the apostle. The, the apostle has made it crystal clear. We're not saved by works. But he urges the saints to good works because why? They glorify God when they come out of a passion, a heart, that realizes we can do nothing in our power. Here's two quick examples from Timothy and Titus. Number three, they are to do good, that is all believers, to be rich in good works, to be generous. Say it with me, rich in good works. Rich in good works. And then in Titus, in Titus chapter 1, he speaks of those who who pollute the faith, who though, as we see in our culture many times today, claiming to be, oh, I'm a, yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I believe, in, I believe in God, and yet by their works, he says, by their works, they deny him. That's a crystal clear evidence in Scripture that accountability is supposed to be lifelong. It's supposed to be something we count on. And, and maybe the best way to uh, sum it up is in Ephesians 2.10, where immediately on the next door neighbor Bible verse, right after saying not of works lest anyone should boast, the next thing Paul writes is, we in Christ are created for works of service, for deeds of glorify God that he has prepared in advance for us to do. The Greek term for work is ergoi, and literally means any accomplishment or task by hand, art, industry, or mind. And it's the root word of the uh, compound word for energy in Philippians 2.13, where the Bible says God is energizing you. That God's power now, because you belong to Christ, there's an energy source, there's a power source. And when Jesus was leading Nicodemus to a point of understanding what the new birth was all about, part of what the Apostle John includes in that conversation was a broader truth for Nicodemus and everyone who needs to know Christ as Savior. And that is that those who, those who are drawn to the light of God are wanting more light. Once you're in Christ, you're drawn to the light. You want more light. He says, he who practices truth, who does what is right, comes out into the light so that his, would you say the word with me? Works may be 
plainly shown to be what they are, produced with God, prompted by God, done with God's help in dependence on him. And so, in a way, what we have here in 1 Corinthians 3.15 is, I think, is a vivid word picture of the finish line of life. It's a vivid word picture of the finish line. If anyone's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as one escaping through the flames. I reach back once more because it's so insightful, about 85, 90 years, 80 years or so, to uh, Dr. Harry Ironside preaching at the Moody Church in, in Chicago to crowds of about 3,500 people. And he, he, he included this in his message, and I think it's quite interesting that when you think of this works being burned up and yet one being saved, as if the, the picture, the word picture is of somebody escaping a burning building and they get out with their life, but nothing else. And there's a way in the ultimate worst case scenario where salvation means being in the presence of Jesus brings reward to the godly things that, that God used to be glorified in a person's life, and yet to the person who's afraid, well, well what, would, what would happen if when I get in that gaze of accountability, I'm so embarrassed, I'm so ashamed. And I love the take that Dr. Ironside gave on this. God will gather that which was for his glory together and will say, I'm going to reward you for that. <laughs> but he'll bring everything to light which was of self, contrary to the Spirit of Christ, and say all that stuff is just so much lost time. I can't reward you for that. Now that's pretty fearful, isn't it? That's pretty sad. And yet then he adds, in, adds this interesting thought. But I tell you what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to burn it up and you'll never hear of it again for all eternity. I had never had that, that thought had never crossed my mind before. When I was reading Ironside, I thought, that is awesome. It's a terrible, I mean, it's a terrible thing. It's, you, you, you fear it and you think, man, am I going to be exposed in every part of my being? Before the blazing light of the holiness of Almighty God? The answer is yes. But he says, all that's going to be burned up. And in eternity, you won't have to see that anymore. Now, now, now the beauty of this is it blends both motivation for godly goals, yes. But it also shows us that there's a motivation that can arise from the freedom to want to finish your race. And I think a great example of that is the wonderful story of Dick Hoyt and his son Rick. And many of you know the story. When Dick Hoyt died about a year and a half ago, after an incredible run in the experience of his son, who was born in 1962, Rick Hoyt, born the same, same year my youngest brother was born, with, um, with spastic cerebral palsy, unable to move his limbs, unable to control his limbs, and unable to speak. And this loving family that uh, loved their, their little disabled one through all the different challenges of those infancy and early years, um, wanted to do in every way they could. They wanted him to be able to communicate, but of course, uh, that was impossible. Until, in 1972, Tufts University engineers took him on as a, as a case, and in a seriously pre-computer age, you know, pre-PC age, they developed 
Tufts University engineers developed a special computer that they were able to teach this little 10, 11-year-old boy later how to actually choose letters on a, on a keyboard and spell out what he wanted to say to his, his parents. And, and, and Dick, when he was writing about their life story back in 2010, said that um, all of us had long since learned how to interpret our son's smiles and nods, but as good as everyone in our family was about figuring out what Rick needed, we were still only making educated guesses until the Tufts engineers designed this computer and the, the, the thing revealing uh, young Rick's passion for sports was the very first thing he was able to type out at the age of about 11 or 12 when they got this ready for him was Go Bruins. And five years later, he asked his father as he was watching the uh, news about a, a 5K run for a benefit in their community, he said to his dad, he said, I'd like, to, I'd like to run in that race, Dad. And Dick was not a competitive runner, but he took that on. And Dick said, okay, we'll, we'll find a way to get you in that race. Little 5K, little community race. And so Dick gets him out there in his wheelchair, and Dick run, runs with his son in this 5K. And what was really striking to me about that first event was a, a phrase that I think we should remember in our own lives. And it is that as they ran that 5K, that Dick and Rick finished next to last. Would you say these words with me? Finished next to last. Say it again. Finished next to last. Now that would be a phrase out of context that doesn't sound very happy, does it? And yet what you see in the life of Dick and Rick is that that determination led to an incredible journey where they began to build up their steam to run in Boston marathons. And, be and beginning in the early 1980s, um, Dick and Rick were a familiar sight in every Boston marathon for 32 years. Dick was pushing his son, running the Boston marathon, and then that developed into an even larger goal where they began to run in races all over the United States. All told, when uh, when they finally stopped running in the, in the marathon in 2016, they had run together in over 1,000 competitive races all across the United States, including one combination biking and running race. And as they, as they did so, um, it was always evident that what uh, Rick and Dick experienced in their lives was a bond between father and son that Rick said, described like this, when my dad and I are out there on a run, a special bond forms between us. And it feels like there's nothing dad and I cannot do. But their first experience was coming in next to last. He said, dad, when we're running, it feels like I'm not disabled. Now, most of us know the old acrostic of SMART goals. It's a familiar thing. And we know that to have a good goal and a good goal for your future, and so as you're charting out your goals this year, you can apply this simple five-point test to every goal. Is it, a, is it SMART? Is it specific? Is it measurable? Is it attainable? Some acrostics will say, is it realistic? And, others, and then, is it uh, timely? 
Um, I like to play with that a little bit because realistic and attainable is kind of the same thought. And so as I got to thinking about it, I realized, and Rick and Dick are a great example of this to me, is that many people, when we start setting our goals, we have to deal with this issue. Is it specific? Can I be specific about what I'm trying to do? Is it measurable? Or are there benchmarks that I can follow? Is it something attainable? Is it within the realm of reason? But here's another one. Is it relational? A husband or wife calibrate their goals together in prayer. Because some things it might sound like a great goal, specific, measurable, attainable, but may not be the best for that, the, the combined relationship. Fathers and, parent, fathers and moms and, and parents have to, have to help to calibrate that. There may be some goal that would be measurable and attainable and specific, but it would take a, a, a parent away from children much longer than they should be uh, for, their, for their development and well-being. In other words, in every area of our lives, there are calibrating uh, there are calibrating principles. That's been true in the life of this church. So often I've found myself struggling, well, how, can, how do I set a new goal when we, you know, without resources and without manpower? And then I would step back and in my time alone with the Lord, the Lord would say, well, it's relational. Figure it out in terms of the existing relationships. And that's been freeing for me, absolutely freeing for me. So what I, what I propose from 1 Corinthians 3 is this accountability for a holy God. The desire to glorify God is the gold in our goals. And it will enable all of us to do what we all need to aspire to do. And that is to finish strong. This is almost a benediction, but I love it so much. Because in 1 Peter chapter 4, there's a section where the Bible says, what, if, you're a, if you're speaking, seek to come under the authority of God fully and bring what is an oracle from God. It's another way of describing stand under the scriptures. Stand underneath the supreme court of your soul. If you are a server, if you are a giver, if you are an engineer, if you are a creator, in all of the diverse ways that we are gifted, he says, whatever you do and however you do it, do it so that in all things God may be praised. Would you just read that little green square with me? So that in all things God may be praised, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. Would you stand together with me? And I want to invite you for a moment to bring to God your heart and your life and a very simple response, either whatever you're comfortable with, either lift your heart visibly with your hands or simply quietly pause if you're more comfortable doing it that way, and, and join me in this simple prayer. Lord, I yearn to glorify you with every fiber of my being. Lord, I yearn to glorify you with every fiber of my being and you can be sure he accepts that. Amen.